Father, this is um, this is your time. I pray that you would be glorified here today. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, uh, <clears throat> I guess since Steve gave that introduction, maybe I should <laughs> mention about how this came about. Um, I was so I was studying through the Gospel of Mark, and I've been doing this. Um, method of Bible study where I write out the scripture and then I write it out in my own words and then what I will do. And so when I came to this passage, normally when I read this passage I think about how it applied to those people then and those bad people and I didn't think about how it applied to me. So when I started writing out what I'm, how it applies to me and what I'm going to do, I realize that there's some there's a message here that probably doesn't just apply to me. It applies to everybody here, so or most of the people. And so I just wanted to share it with everybody. Um, this is Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 40. It's about honoring God. Um, and here's the passage. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, you can just look up on the screen, or or you can raise your hand and get a Bible. Um, as, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So before I talk about the passage itself, let me introduce a little bit of the background and the context. So Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. People were honoring him. They were throwing their coats down, letting the donkey trample on their coats. They were really um, excited to see Jesus come into, the, into Jerusalem. He went into the temple. He started turning over the tables and making a big commotion there because the people were um, buying and selling the animals for sacrifice and exchanging money there. And if you, if you read that passage, you'll notice... It's kind of like a sandwich in that Jesus goes into the temple, but before he goes into the temple, as he's entering Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. It says he's hungry. He goes to get some figs. And all he found on the tree was leaves, and he cursed the fig tree. And sometimes when we read that, we miss what it really means because we don't know anything about fig trees here. But in, in Jerusalem, there were two seasons for figs. They came twice and this was too early even for the first season, but it was about six weeks before they would get ripe. And the first figs weren't that good, but even before they were ripe, if you were really hungry, you could eat them. And so he, was, he would, went up to the tree and he didn't find any figs there. And if there weren't figs in the first season, there wouldn't be figs at their whole year. So that tree wasn't bearing fruit, okay? Even spite of the fact that it wasn't the season for figs. And so he's talking about this tree isn't bearing fruit and it's a prophetic picture that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that the nation of Israel, especially their leaders at that time, were not bearing fruit. 
And so the Spirit of God was going to move on to where he would bear fruit. He was going to leave them, and the temple was going to be destroyed. The same message was coming through when, when Jesus went into the temple and turned over the tables. He's giving a prophetic message to the people. This is it. This temple is going to be destroyed because God no longer blesses the work that's going on here. And so that's the message he's giving. And of course, the people who were in charge, they didn't miss that. They got the message and they they sensed that their authority was being challenged. Jesus didn't make any secret about that. And so they were upset and they challenged his authority. Where did you get your authority from? And he didn't tell them. And they asked him a lot of questions. They challenged him with riddles and tried to see if he could figure out the answers. And they asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And questions like that. But Jesus was never fooled. He was never fooled. And in fact, the more they asked him questions to try to make him look bad in front of the people so that they could arrest him, he looked better and better. And the people were getting excited about this great teacher. And so that's when Jesus comes out and he poses them a riddle about the Messiah. And so he says here, let me review it again. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So the scribes, or the teachers of the law, they were saying the Messiah who was promised to come was going to be a son of David, a descendant from David. And Jesus himself was. And then he quotes from a psalm, I think it's Psalm 110, where David writes, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit because this is the Bible, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Lord being God, my Lord being the Messiah, the Christ. Now this is Jesus' interpretation And most of the interpreters of the law hadn't thought of this as a messianic passage. And so they didn't really think about this. And he he challenged them with this question, and they were stumped. They had no answer. But regardless of how you interpreted this verse, the question still remains. The Messiah is a descendant of David, and, and the Messiah is greater than David. So the one who's older is less than the one who comes later. And for them, in their cultural mindset, that was confusing. So they would have had to reconcile that. And so he's given them this question. They don't have an answer. Again, Jesus looks good, and the people, the throngs, are, they hear him gladly. So now they can't arrest him, and he goes on to speak directly to the leaders. And so he says, about the scribes, they have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts. What does that mean? Well, in order to understand that, we have to know a little bit about what this concept of honor means in the ancient Middle East. In fact, it's very similar today in the Middle East. I'll kind of illustrate it from what I'm familiar with. Um, When I first got married, my wife is Chinese. Her family now is living in Hong Kong. So the first thing that happened after we got married, when we went to visit them, um, we went to visit them about a year after we got married, uh, she coached me before we went in to her parents' house. She said, first thing you need to do is greet her father. 
I need to say hi to her father. And then I need to say hi to her mother and then to everybody else. Because I need to honor the head of the household. The father of the house was the head of the household. And so I had to say hi to her father. And that's, that's actually an appropriate use of honor. Right? And then when we went out to eat, so my wife has two brothers and a sister, and they were all married, and so we had all of us together with her parents. We went out to eat. They reserved a room in a restaurant in Hong Kong, and the place where her father sits. It's the seat farthest away from the door, around the big round table. And next to him, on his right side, his wife, Minglan's mom. And then he invited me to sit on his left as the guest of honor because we came all the way from America to visit them. And so I didn't know I was just going to sit down any old place, right? I had no idea about this, this custom. But they had this same custom back then. And so they were, these teachers would invite themselves to take the best seat, the most honorable place in the synagogue or at the feast. They like to be greeted in the marketplaces. So people would they'd be walking through the marketplace with their long flowing robes and, and people would say, Rabbi, teacher, teacher. And, and they would just enjoy that because they were receiving all this honor. For, and if that wasn't enough, for a pretense, they made long prayers in public to make sure that everybody knew that they were the religious teachers and then finally he says they devoured widows' houses. And I'm not really sure how they were devouring ri- widows' houses and the commentaries say different things, but one guess would, might come from the context because just a few verses later, Jesus is commenting about a poor widow who puts in a couple of small copper coins worth about a penny. And he calls, called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And when we read this, normally we think of, wow, that widow was very generous. And so it's a very good thing that he says about her. But there may also be another meaning is that it's sort of critical of the leaders because here the leaders of the temple were encouraging this poor widow to put in all the money she had to live on and they should be taking money out of the temple treasury to help her instead of expecting her to give what little she had. So it it may be that he's talking about this as a social justice issue in this context. Now, coming back to honor... This is what God says about his honor. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Let's take a look at this in the context because I think we want to know how is God glorified and where is he being glorified. He said, and when we read the word coastlands, think about traveling around um, on the sea of on the Mediterranean Sea, you would go to all these different nations all around the world. So when you see coastlands, think of the nations of the world. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison 
those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and all their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Oh, it's back. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. So God is going to be glorified in all the nations of the earth. That's what Jesus said. He quoted from the Old Testament when he went into the temple and turned over the tables. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Why did it disturb Jesus so much that there's buying and selling in the temple? Because they're in the court, the outer court that's supposed to be dedicated for the Gentiles to come and worship. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a light to the whole world. The nations were supposed to be attracted and drawn in there and worship God, and they had no place to worship because the outer court that was dedicated for the Gentiles was occupied by all this business and trade. There we go. So why their greater condemnation? And the NIV phrases it this way, their punishment will be most severe. The Bible, the Old Testament, and all the symbols that were given to Israel as a nation were designed to bring the people to give their glory and honor to God. And the leaders, the scribes, were taking those symbols and the Bible itself and using it to bring honor to themselves. They were stealing what belonged to God and taking it for themselves. Isn't that serious? So now we think of how bad that was. But does it apply to us? And I want us to think about how this might apply. I think it was probably around 10 years ago now. Steve and I and some other people from the church, we went out to Almaden Lake Park. We had some uh, tracts and Bibles and things with us. And we went out to talk to people just randomly. We talked to some people who were sitting around that didn't have anything particular to do. We asked them what they thought about God. A lot of times we got answers that people would say, well, I, I like I like God, I, I believe in God, sort of, or you know, they have different concepts of who God was, but they oftentimes would say, I don't like the church, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. That's what you hear when you go out into the world. And I think they were more open with us because we were strangers, right? So they didn't have anything to lose in telling us what they really thought. But that's the question, how much of... Those scribes' mentality is in ourselves. And I started asking myself, you know, actually, I like to be known as a nice person. And I don't like to be known as a fanatic. Right? I like to talk about God with people in the church here. Because we all share God in common. We worship the same God. We love the same God. We read the same Bible. 
And it's, it's fun to hang around with each other and talk about the spiritual things. When I talk with other people, oftentimes they're not interested in hearing about God. They're not interested in talking about God. And, you know, even when I call my parents on the phone, I talk to them and they, when I talk about the thing that matters most to me, which is God, I get dead silence on the other end. And then the subject changes. Right? And it hurts to, to have that happen, right? You don't feel very good. And why is that? There's something inside of me that likes to be accepted and likes to be honored. And so I think that as a result, a lot of us like to hang around with each other in the church. Maybe it's not true of all of us, but I think that sometimes it's hard for us to go out into the world to do the work that God's called us to do because you know, we like to, the honor that we give our, each other rather than to go out and do the hard work and get rejected. Um, my daughter Jamie's in college, and she's in a part of an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship group there. And so this is, I'm just saying this because it's not just us in this church. It's pretty much all over the country is the same thing. She made an observation. She said, well, the people in the InterVarsity group they love the Lord, but they hang around together a lot. In fact, they study together. They go to meals together. They do everything together. They don't really have time to interact with the rest of the people on the campus. But she, uh, fortunately, I think it was probably by God's grace. I don't think it was by her plan. She met a bunch of other people, and she made a lot of friends. She has this, her own little circle of friends, and she's the only believer in the group. And they have lots of interesting conversations about spiritual things and, and their <laughs> philosophy of life and things like that. Um, and she also participates in InterVarsity, but she got involved a little bit later, so she's not quite as heavily involved there. So she's kind of bridging between the two groups. But that's what we want to, be able, want to try to do, is to be a light you know, out in the world where we, where we go. On the other hand, I think if, if some of you are feeling like, hey, that's a little heavy, you know, I, I think it's good that we spend time together. It is good that we spend time together as Christians, right? Jesus commanded it. Love one another just as I have loved you. So it's not about either spend time with Christians or go out into the world and spend time with other people. It's we need to do both. And... So to strike that right balance, there's no set rule there that tells us how much time we should spend doing one or the other. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit because our relationship with God is a relationship just like our relationship with each other. And relationships aren't governed by rules for the most part. Now to go a little bit deeper into the greeting in the marketplaces, let me give a, another experience I, I had when I was in China. We lived in China from 2004 to 2010. And <clears throat> in China, they have this expression. They call it uh, patting the horse's bottom. And it means flattery. Okay? And so, uh, actually, that happens a lot is if you're a, somebody's boss or you're a teacher or some sort of leader... Anybody in authority, people kind of treat you special. 
And they say all kinds of nice things about you, which probably aren't really true. And as a foreigner, you know, we were oftentimes put into positions of authority because people trusted us, whether we deserved it or not. And I saw a lot of times that foreign people in China, especially some of the men, they let it get to their heads. And it was tragic, tragic, because you would see some of these guys would start to think they were somebody and they were such handsome men and then they would start going out with young ladies that were half their age and abandon their wife and children. And then we in the church were left to pick up the pieces. And it was, it was horrible to see how much it would pain the, the wife and the children who were left behind. And so I, you know, knowing that, I was very careful not to try to try not to let it get to my head. But, you know, you're constantly hearing these things over and over again. You start to think, oh, maybe I have some special talents. Maybe I'm really good at something. It's it's hard not to be affected, right? And so we we have to realize that. And I think that makes us ineffective in the kingdom of God. It hurt me. To have people saying that all the time. Oh, you're good, you're good, you're good. Right? At some point, you have to come down to earth and realize, I'm just like everybody else. And so are all of you. We need encouragement. We need people to tell us when we're doing the right thing. I mean, sometimes we just don't know. I mean, we need to know if we're doing right, if we're doing wrong. We need that feedback. But the ultimate question we should be asking ourselves is not, how do people think about us? But is God pleased with what I'm doing? Because only God's opinion matters. So it's good for us to serve, whether it's in the church or out in the world, it's good to serve without pay, without reward, without compliment, without thanks. Now in the church, I thank God we have such gracious leaders like Steve and Jan and and, um, Joe and Cindy. And every time I go back to the children's ministry to work with the kids steve will pop his head in before 10 and say oh thank you so much for helping with the kids and i'm just like you know i actually i just love to be with the kids it, it you know i love to teach the kids I, actually i should be with the kids today i'm missing out but you know that's the question i guess we should ask ourselves if, if i'm not getting the same attention as somebody else and I did something, and if I'm feeling bad about it, maybe there's something in my heart that says, I'm just like one of those scribes. I want the people's attention. I want people's acceptance and people's praise because I'm actually proud in my heart. So if they forget to say thanks, they just forgot. Just be gracious to them. Okay. When I was um, in college... I remember hearing sermons they used to say that if you go out into you know your neighborhood or you ask your friends and probably 60 to 70% of them if you ask them if you just ask them they would come to church with you. Now I would venture to say that number doesn't make sense to most of you. Because if if you've tried to ask people to come to church probably 90% of the time they don't want to come unless they have a lot of church background already. And that's not to blame anybody, because that's just the way it is. You you know, you're asking people to come into a social environment that they're not familiar. They don't know any of the people. 
They don't know the songs that we're singing. They've never read the Bible that we're reading. And so it's, they'll be confused. They'll be lost here. So we can't expect people to come to where we are anymore in this time. We need to go to where they are. We need to go back to the basics of what Jesus said. He said, go and make disciples. So we need to go out where they are, and when we go out to there, to, out into the world, we're going to find that our reception is sort of uh, mediocre at best. And a lot of it has to do with the way that we're portrayed, which is not accurate. Out in the world, some, they, they, a lot of times the news reports will pick out the most extreme cases, somebody who's out there holding protest signs saying we hate homosexuals or something like that. That's not who we are, but that's people have that perception that Christians are extreme. Some of them have that perception. Not all of them. A lot of people think we're nice people. There's another barrier that we might face, and that is people have experienced a lot of pain in their life. And when we go to talk to them about serious things like God, they're like, wait a second, you know, that's serious. They want to keep the discussion light. Right? Because there's a lot of things going on inside. They don't want to open up until they know for sure they can trust you. So having relationships out in the world, and we need to put forth a certain level of commitment to those relationships in order to build that level of trust so that we can share with people openly. And so, in a sense, though, it's good for us because we can go out there and we're not getting any kind of reward or thanks or anything else. That really tests our true motives. Is our heart there really to serve the Lord as to glorify God and we don't care about any honor for ourselves? If that's true, then we'll be, we'll be willing to do that. We need to leave the response up to God. Now I'm going to... Oh, I left my book. Jamie. <laughs> I'm going to read a passage from a book. Okay. Um, and this is a letter from a church in Hunan province in China. But this was in, back in 1982. So it was some time ago. And when we were in China, we didn't see any of this kind of persecution. So this was back in 1982. And it was in Hunan province, different from the place where we were. It says they were started, they started preaching the gospel in the poorest and most desolate regions. And nobody seemed to listen, so they prayed and they were greatly inspired by God. Then they started to preach and the power of God came and a lot of people were affected by the, the gospel message. Then the authorities came and they dragged them away one by one, binding them with ropes and beating them with electric stun guns. They also kicked them in the face with their leather shoes, beating them unconscious. But when they came awake, they continued to pray, sing, and preach to the bystanders. One girl who was only 14 was beaten senseless, but when she came to and saw that many people were sympathetic, she started to preach again. Her words were few and spoken in a low voice, but the street acrobats and actors could not refrain from crying out, repenting and believing in Jesus. As they were being bound and beaten, many people noticed a strange expression on their faces. Amazed, they saw that they were smiling. 
Their spirit and appearance was so lively and gracious that the crowd asked why they did not feel ashamed. Their example caused many people to believe in Jesus. And she goes on to explain what they learned from this. And I think we have a lot to learn from people who've experienced this kind of thing. She says, a lot of people would see this as a tragic thing, but for the Christians it was like a rich banquet. This lesson cannot be learned from books, and the sweetness is rarely tasted by men. This rich spiritual life cannot be had in a comfortable environment where there is no cross, there is no victory. If grapes are not crushed in the vat, they cannot become wine. Dearly beloved, these saints who went down into the fiery furnace, far from being harmed, have been glorified. Their spirits have been filled with power to preach the gospel with far greater authority and to enjoy a far more abundant spiritual life. Satan was unable to force them to give up their faith, so they were released and they were emboldened to preach the gospel. One thing I learned when we were in China, I used to talk to people all the time about the gospel, but um, they would... This is my wife's observation. She's a native speaker of Chinese, and I'm not a native speaker, so I didn't catch the subtle hints. She said they were kind of rejecting me and pushing me off, but I didn't understand. So I just kept going and broke through the barrier, and when they finally heard the message of the gospel and found out how good it really was, they were actually very interested in the conversation. But there's that barrier you've got to break through. And so for a lot of us, it's important to be like little children and ignore the rejection keep pressing on because what's behind that is people need the Lord they really do so I'm going to read one more quote from uh, the same book this is China's Christian Millions by Tony Lambert those who survived long years in labor camps were released by 1980 to return to ministry in churches and house churches all over the country Their principled stand not to compromise the gospel has deeply influenced younger Christians. Suffering has refined the church. Men such as Wang Mingdao learned the simple but difficult lesson not to fear persecution. For them, the truths of the gospel were more precious than life itself. We don't have to fear what we see or any kind of rejection out there. I mean, they, they faced a lot worse than we ever did, but we don't need to be afraid of how people respond to us. God will take care of that. And if, if we're being judged by other people as, as being judgmental or, or extreme or whatever it is, God will give us what we need to say at the time. The Holy Spirit will lead us. And that's what Jesus says here. And Mark chapter 13, which is really part of the same context and the same flow of what we just read in Mark 12. Jesus says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver over brother to death. And the father his child, 
and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Father, I pray that you give us hearts that seek to glorify your name and that we would let go of our own desires to be accepted and welcomed and whatever attention that we might want for ourselves and that we would seek to glorify you and purify our hearts, Lord, and make us more fruitful, Lord. Make us to be a fruitful fig tree that we would accomplish the purpose that you have us here on the earth to do, to bring glory to your name among all the nations. Father, lead us and help us to be humble. And I pray that your will be done right here in this church, just like it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.